0: Matthew 28 this morning, Matthew 28 is our text, well not the entire chapter but the beginning of it, middle of it I should say, every single gospel writer records the account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read it a few minutes ago, that the gospel, including the account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, was of first importance in the Christian message. The gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ became an essential element in every Christian creed from the earliest days of the church. This is Matthew's account in chapter 28, and what Matthew's focused on in this chapter are the eyewitness testimony that was born by certain of the women who were Jesus' disciples. And we've seen this the last two or three um, sections of Scripture, that what he's highlighting in particular is the continuity of testimony that these eyewitnesses bore. These were the very same people, some of the very same names mentioned, who had walked and talked with Jesus Christ up in Galilee. They knew Him intimately. They spent time with Him. They heard His teaching. They watched His miracles. They were the same people who stood at the foot of the cross watching our Lord being crucified. Those same people, those same women, their names are recorded, were the ones who also stood outside the tomb as our Lord's body was prepared for burial, as it was placed in the tomb. They saw where it was. They saw how He was laid. And it was, in fact, in the providence of God, those same individuals who were the first to the tomb on that third day morning that resurrection day, that first day of the week, and discovered the empty tomb and heard the angelic testimony. This is, in the grace of God, the testimony that God has to encourage our faith in the historical reality of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. But interestingly, Matthew also tells the testimony of other eyewitnesses. And in fact, their testimony bore a very different outcome. Matthew sets before us these two sets of eyewitnesses and their testimonies side by side so that we can see and compare and contrast them. Not only does he set them side by side, but Matthew actually uses identical terminology To urge us to compare these two accounts. Let me show you. In verse 8, the end of the verse, if you have an ESV, it says, They ran to tell his disciples. And that word tell is the word apangelo, the Greek word, and it means to give a report or to bring a message, to bring news of something. All right, that's the word for tell. That same words used down in verse 10 when Jesus instructs, Jesus himself instructs the women, go tell the brothers. So here are some women who are sent on a mission to give a report, to give a testimony, an eyewitness account of what they've seen and heard and experienced. Now, now look down in verse 11. This is the beginning of our text for the morning. It says that while they were going, while those women were on their way to tell, While they were on their way to report what they'd seen, behold, some of the guard who was at the tomb, they went into the city and what? And they told. Same word, same basic word. They reported to the chief priests all that had taken place. So what you have going on here is that at the very moment that the women are rushing off to tell the disciples what they had seen and heard and experienced and witnessed, the soldiers were rushing off to report to the priests what they had seen and heard and witnessed and experienced. So you have these two accounts set side by side. The wording itself invites us to compare and to contrast the outcome of these two different these two eyewitness reports. So our text is going to begin in Matthew chapter twenty eight. Verse number 11, while these women were going to tell the disciples, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. When you think about it, this really is a remarkable testimony. These men... These soldiers, these guards, were in fact eyewitnesses. They were, I guess you might call them hostile eyewitnesses, right? They were hostile witnesses and the agents of the enemies of Jesus Christ. And even yet, they could not deny what they saw, what they experienced. And they didn't. They did not hold back. The verse says that they told the chief priests all that had taken place. What's that? All the things we just read last week, right? The earthquake that shook that whole area. The blinding light. These men experienced those things. The angelic creature descending from heaven. The huge stone rolled away from the tomb by some power that they didn't understand. And they, they saw all of the same things. They are reporting these things. I don't know how much of the, of the conversation that they heard, the conversation between the angels and the women. The angels, of course, said to the women, He is not here. He is risen just exactly as He said He would. But they would definitely, the soldiers would definitely have searched that tomb thoroughly. I mean, you can believe me. Their reputations and maybe even their lives were on uh, on the line here. And they searched that tomb after everything was finally over, and found just what they feared: it was empty, completely empty, except the burial cloths lying on the the stone slab there in that tomb. And they knew that, of course, before the earthquake, the tomb had been undisturbed. They'd been keeping watch 24 hours a day, seven days a week, well, three days, that Christ was in the tomb. The tomb had been undisturbed, the seal unbroken. They knew that was the case before all of this incredible experience. They knew that the women didn't carry the body away, and yet they knew that the tomb was empty. And what is remarkable as well is that they had no explanation, uh, no human explanation for what had happened. This was something for which they didn't have any account except for what, it actually, what they had actually seen and witnessed. And that was all they could do was just say, what had happened to those to whom they were reporting. Their account of these dramatic events was, I'm sure, um, in the hopes that they would not be seen as negligent or complicit in the body's disappearance. So far better to say what actually happened. And they did. and. Almost surely, either the council member Joseph of Arimathea, remember he was a member of the Sanhedrin, or Nicodemus, or perhaps one of their aides, was present um, at that report to hear the guard's testimony, and they later recounted that testimony to the apostle Matthew, who then in turn recounts it for us. What an amazing thing it would have been to sit there in that room, wherever it was, perhaps in the home of the chief priest or someplace, and to hear the testimony from the mouths of these Jewish or Roman guards, no friend of Jesus by any means, telling exactly what they had seen and heard. This is astonishing, I say, because it comes from the mouth from the mouths of non-partisan witnesses who are, in fact, working for a hostile adversary. These men are not disciples. They don't have a vested interest in proving the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are not believers anxious to spread their faith, right? That's why I say this testimony, in fact, is astounding. And it's not just the testimony of a single guard either. The Bible says here that, quote, some of the guard, and the word some is plural. I don't know how many guards were stationed at that tomb. Any uh, guess is just that, a guess. But obviously there were more than, there was more than one. And so a number of the guards have now come to report just exactly what every single one of them agrees that they saw and that they felt, and that they heard. And I imagine it was sometime that Sunday morning that they made their way to the chief priests and gave their initial report. Uh, these soldiers reported, of course, immediately to the priests, although ultimately I'm sure that they, were, um, they felt this accountability that they would have toward Rome. Uh, whose seal uh, presumably was marking that tomb. Well, sometime later, maybe later that afternoon, uh, the chief priests gathered the entire council together, the text tells us, the whole Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin of Jerusalem, to discuss how they should uh, handle this testimony. And of course the concern was, rightly so, that this would bolster the uh, the, it would bolster the faith and the commitment of Jesus' followers, and in turn, that it would threaten the authority and the the influence of the scribes and the, the uh, Sadducees and the and the Sanhedrin, and that possibly it might even lead to unrest among the people. Remember, they didn't understand um, Christianity; they didn't understand Christ or His message. They were concerned that perhaps it would lead to unrest and bring the wrath of Rome down upon the Jews. But I think there's also something else going on here um, in, in terms of their motivations. And that is you have to remember that the Sanhedrin was dominated by Sadducees. Most all of the priests were of uh, of the Sadducees. And of course, you know that there were other um, parties, factions within Judaism at the time, including some on the Sanhedrin. There were there were um, uh, a, gr- a small group called, or a group called the Herodians, and more of a political group probably. Um, and then, of course, the Pharisees—you know, with Jesus, many interactions with them. But the Sadducees were dominant uh, among the uh, priests and and uh, the the uh, Sanhedrin. And the Sadducees, you may know, had No no theological categories with which to explain or with which to understand or engage with the testimony that was being given by these people. Because remember that the Sadducees, they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the body in the last day. They, They thought, you know, this life, that's all there is. There's no... Or, or, you know, in, in terms of our, our bodies, they don't, they're not going to be raised the last day. And here are guards telling the account of an angel and bodies back to life. And, and these people also were skeptical of miracles in general. They were just, they were kind of the, sort of the anti supernaturalists of their day. In other words, the Sadducean, party of Judaism, and in fact, most of the leaders of Judaism as a whole, were what we would have to call an apostate religion. This is not the faith that had been handed down to them from their fathers. This is not the word of the Old Testament. You begin to read the Old Testament and what do you find? You find that God intervenes in the world, that the whole world comes about by the act of God, and that He continues to intervene in the lives of His people and in history in unusual and dramatic ways, sometimes even in ways, as the Old Testament plainly reads, in ways that seem to contradict what what we sometimes call the laws of nature or to be Over those, or or to use those in some ways that we don't understand and we can't explain in any kind of human way. The Old Testament reads like that, but these guys rejected, well, they rejected a a, a good bit of the Old Testament, or at least downplayed it, and uh, what was there they were really dishonest about. I mean, you'd have to say they treated the Old Testament as if it said something, but it didn't really say what it said. Okay, And I want to remind you friends this morning that that is exactly what apostate religion does today. Right now this morning, in countless pulpits across America, there are pastors getting up to preach the Bible who don't believe that the Bible says what it seems to say. In other words, they are looking for all kinds of ways to explain away what seems to be the plain reading of the Scripture that God miraculously works in this world, that He raises the dead, that He sends His angels to minister to His people. They find ways to use... In fact, here's here's what makes it so difficult, friends. Here's what makes it so dangerous, is that preachers like this and churches like this, and I'm talking about not just a few. I mean, we're talking about mainline Christian denominations, who are by and large filled with pastors and preachers and priests and 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 and, and, and clerics who use the terminology of the Bible. Like on Easter Sunday morning, we'll preach Christ rose from the dead, but who in their minds, and sometimes in the way that they communicate, are meaning something entirely different from what the Bible plainly says. That is, that Christ bodily rose again. And you could see him and touch him and feel him and talk with him and recognize him. This is. The state of religion in which we live, not a whole lot different from the Sadducean party in ancient Judaism. I want to tell you this: that the the differences. You think about the differences between various denominations, all right? Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Anglican. Think about the differences between various christian denominations i want to tell you that those differences significant as they are those differences are a drop in the bucket compared to the differences between on the one hand let's just use baptists baptists who take the bible seriously at face value and baptist apostate baptist groups who deny what the Bible says, even while trying to use the same terminology and language. In other words, between those l- theologically liberal, apostate congregations and Bible believing churches, there are, there are far greater differences than all of the differences between Bible believing people you know, of various denominations. So this is why it's a hard question to answer. You know, somebody says, well, how do I compare this church and that church and this church? You know? And I can I can answer that in a couple of different ways. I can say, like a denomination. Somebody say, well, what about such and such a denomination? Okay, on the one hand, I can answer this question. Here are the denominational differences. And they're not insignificant, but we might also recognize that somebody can be an absolutely truly brother or sister in Christ and have those differences. But on the other hand, if that denomination is inhabited by preachers who deny the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the inspiration of the Bible, the miraculous nature of the works of God, the resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily from the dead, they deny those things. There is a world of difference, right? You see what I'm getting at? And, And it is imperative for us to be cognizant of that, to be aware of that, and to be guarded on that. The Bible tells us that there will come false teachers into uh, the church that will, in fact, sometimes rise up within the church. And these people are present. Such were the men of the Sanhedrin. And so, with all of these motivations percolating underneath, they finally come to a decision, and the decision is to spread an alternative account of what had happened that day in the garden tomb. And of course, the account, they instruct the uh, Guards to go out and to, quote, tell people that his disciples came by night and stole the body away while we were asleep. That's your story. And I'm sticking with it, right? That was what they were supposed to do. Now, of course, that was an admission of a pretty serious dereliction of duty on the part
1: of the guards.
0: And uh, the seriousness of that uh, was that, at the very least, uh, this would have been a blow to their reputations, their livelihood. I don't think they're going to get a whole lot of guard work after this um, with that kind of track record. Uh, But, of course, it's possible that the, the punishment could be even much more severe. Sometimes guards were even afraid of of death as uh as a consequence for their prisoners um, escaping um, and so, in order to make this deal with the uh, guards, the Sanhedrin had to provide them with two things to get them to agree. number one, uh, a large sum of money, more than enough to make up for any loss of reputation or loss of work and stain on their characters. Um, At least in the soldiers' eyes. They saw it as a a deal worth making. I wonder how much money that would have had had to have been, you know? And if those soldiers ever wondered later on in their lives if it was worth it. And the second thing, of course, that the Sanhedrin promised them is protection. We will protect you should the Roman governor find out about this. And, of course, the the background to this is the ongoing power struggle, you might call it, between the Jews and the Romans. Of course, the Romans were the dominant ones, um, internationally, but within uh, Judea in particular, uh, there was a bit of kind of back and forth uh, power dynamic uh, going on between the Jewish leadership and the Roman um, representatives. And it's like, you know, I think I used this illustration when we were a few weeks ago, but it's kind of like two departments in your company who kind of need each other, but kind of hate each other at the same time. Right? And that's kind of the way it was. And they, they, uh, uh, at the crucifixion, of course, the Sanhedrin saw that the Roman governor was willing to acquiesce to their demands for the crucifixion of Jesus, even though he ended up saying, I, I think, I don't think he's guilty. But they had enough pressure to be able to bring to bear on him to Keep him sort of, if not under their thumb, at least within within a, a close range of what they uh, wanted to see done. And so they uh, communicated this to the guards. "We'll take care of we'll take care of the Romans. We'll take care of keeping them off of your case." Um, and the guards apparently understood and believed that the Sanhedrin had the power to protect them and to placate Pilate, um, perhaps with a little, you know, extra tax money or whatever the case may be, you know how it works. Uh, but they uh they believed that, that would be the case should the need arise. And so at the end of the day, they did agree. They agreed to take the money and they began to spread the agreed upon explanation. And apparently this was uh so widespread that Matthew says that when uh though when he wrote down his gospel uh finally some 20 years later that this story was still being spread in his day and uh Justin Martyr who writes a uh, 100 years after these events say that it was still in his day a common Jewish explanation for the empty tomb and the uh and the missing body uh in the Middle Ages, there was a widespread Jewish text that actually said that um, Judas had helped the disciples to steal the body and had buried, reburied the body in another place to try to show that he had risen. And he had buried him where no one would ever find him, underneath a stream. He actually, They actually diverted the stream in order to bury the body and then The wa- made the water go back over it. So this is- this is the accounts that is the stories that are being circulated. And you know how it is. You played the game telephone, right? And the little- the story gets- and then it gets told to somebody else and somebody else and maybe sort of embellished. And-and-and-and this story is just making all of the rounds among the Jews. And of course, in fact, today, many reject Christ's resurrection. And many reject it just completely out of hand, right? Just from a commitment to pure naturalism a predisposition against the supernatural you know sometimes christians are accused of having a kind of circular reasoning why why do you believe that because the bible says it why do you believe the bible because it's the word of god you know and 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 yet the truth is um that in one, in one sense, everybody in the world brings a kind of circular reasoning to bear. There is a predisposition or a pre-commitment to naturalistic explanations that excludes out of hand the possibility of miracles. Why it, it didn't happen? Why didn't it happen? Because it couldn't have happened. Well, okay. But you've got people saying it happened. So how do you deal with that testimony. How do you deal with that eyewitness testimony, not only from His followers, but now from those who are working for His enemies? Of course, the truth is that this explanation, and in fact, every other explanation of Christ's resurrection is fatally flawed. You know, one of the glaring problems that just sort of jumps out at you right away is, you know, If they're asleep, how do they know what happened, right? How do they know the disciples came and stole the body? But beyond that, you begin to think about the situation as it stood. You know, the disciples were told in John chapter 20, verse 9, the disciples did not grasp or remember the predictions of Christ's resurrection until after He was raised. Say well, how could they not have remembered that? How could they have not have known? Jesus said it two or three times, you know, plainly. Plus, you know, other times in these sort of other ways. And I, I, all I can figure is this: you know, how many times have I heard something from the Word of God and it's just kind of passed over my ears and through through my brain, and I didn't really engage with it, right? And I'm so I'm reading the Bible uh, five years later, and I and I say, I never saw that before. <laughs> I think that. The the prophecies of the resurrection of the Messiah, the confessions uh, from our Lord that He would be raised were just so amazing, so fantastic that uh, the disciples' minds just sort of mentally dismissed it as as kind of maybe one more puzzling thing that they didn't really understand and just let it go. But in any case, when John says, when they went to that tomb that day, he and Peter, that they were not thinking about the prophecies of resurrection. You also recognize that, you know, these men were hiding, right? They were fearful. These men, when confronted in the Garden of Gethsemane the night our Lord was crucified or was arrested, uh, they ran for their lives. They didn't stand up with him, they didn't go to the uh, go boldly into the uh, Roman gathering that night, uh, along with our Lord. No, this was this was uh, this was a time of great fear for them, and it, it seems so out of character then for men who are gripped by such fear to hatch a plan to sneak into the garden in the middle of the night to a tomb surrounded by armed guards. To try to move that thing, if the guards were asleep, without waking anybody up. Not just one guard, but multiple guards apparently. Without waking anyone up, roll the stone away without making a noise. And steal the body, unwrapping it, and get it out of there. I mean, it's just, when you really begin to think... And I'm sure, you know, a lot of the, the people who heard the guards' testimony... Who knew more of the account um, recognize that you know things just don't add up here you know you you think about the guards as well is it likely that the guards would have fallen asleep in the first place, as I mentioned earlier, the severe consequences in some cases of, a, of falling asleep on guard duty and and not only that but the timing of it as well think about this they. They were specifically stationed. They were, this wasn't going to be an indefinite guard. Guard this for till kingdom come. This was guard this tomb until the what? Their orders were to guard it until the third day. Why? Because testimony had come to them that they had heard that Jesus would rise again on the third day. So of all times to fall asleep, you know, you might fall asleep. If you're going to fall asleep on duty, maybe you fall take a little cat nap on day one or halfway through day two. But on the morning of day three, you don't fall asleep. It's just hard to comprehend from a human psychological level. Or consider that this explanation that was circulated doesn't explain all the appearances of our Lord. Think about it, that's a whole other string of testimony which uh Matthew uh, just barely highlights here but is unfolded throughout other gospels and other uh of the New Testament that Jesus appeared we read it in, in 1 Corinthians right Jesus appeared on many occasions to many different people I should have completed this task I was intending to add up all of the uh people to whom that that we know of the named people to whom Christ appeared and of course we have other others who we don't know their names. But this is multiple people across the course of many days. With some, he spent hours. He These were people who knew him. He's not appearing to people who had only glanced at him from afar, but people who were his close companions. They touched him. They ate with him. He appeared to them in the daytime. He appeared to them at night. He appeared to sometimes large groups of people. I mean, think about this. It's one thing we hear all the time of somebody you know, just in a mental state where they're sort of disconnected from reality, it seems, right? We've all heard stories like that. Somebody who just, for whatever reason, he's in a state where he thinks he's somewhere else or he sees something that's not really there, um, and he's just, you know, almost hallucinating or something. He's just mentally um, unstable, and, and you might imagine that with one or maybe maybe two uh, people who are sort of playing off of each other, but a multitude of people all seeing the same thing at the same time, this person whom they knew was dead and now is alive in a body that can be touched and seen and recognized. I mean, this is really extraordinary testimony by, I think, any standard of testimony that is commonly accepted in the world today. First Corinthians chapter 15, which is written, what, some 20 years or so later maybe, uh, Paul is able to say that there were in fact many eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, His resurrected appearances. They saw Him 20 years ago, and they're still alive today. I mean, imagine that. I mean, that's... That's a bold move if this is not true. If those people aren't actually out there or they're not actually corroborating your statement to write this down and to send it out to the churches and say, Hey, if you, if you're struggling with this, go ask one of these eyewitnesses. But that was the case in the earliest days of Christianity. It was this powerful testimony and it was so powerful and so widespread that Nearly overnight, it took the world by storm. Think about that. Think about the explosive growth of Christianity, first among the Jews and then very quickly among the surrounding nations and to uh, across uh, the the southern part of Europe and just the explosive growth. I mean, in one day, the book of Acts records that 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. How do you explain that Apart from acknowledging that something astounding must have happened, this story that was circulated also doesn't explain the drastic change that came over the disciples between crucifixion, when they're running scared, and Pentecost, when they're boldly standing in the face of an angry uh, reception in many cases, boldly standing and proclaiming the name of the risen Jesus Christ. I wonder if any reasonable person would die, would suffer and die for what he knew was a lie. You know, you might I can see somebody risking a lot for some kind of personal reputation or a moment of fame. You know, you hear about um, that kind of thing happening sometime. But it's hard to imagine any sane person really being willing to go through the torture and the martyrdom that we know that most of these disciples, most all of them, were subjected to. They were proclaiming with their dying breath while burning in the flames and nailed to crosses the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, something's got hold of them deep down. They feel like this is true. And just take the 12 disciples for a minute. Let's just think about them. You know, each one of them Testified firsthand that Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead, had ascended into heaven. Each of these 12 people is then persecuted and eventually executed for that belief. Separated from the others with opportunity to recant. And none of them did. You might perhaps imagine one person hallucinating the event and dying for what he truly believed to be true, or a couple of them could have inspired together, conspired together, but 12 people unanimously, not to mention all of the other witnesses who bore testimony to Christ, willing to suffer and die for what they knew to be true. It's just a really astounding testimony. Of course, many people have died for a lie. You think of the suicide bombers who die for uh, Islam or the followers of David Koresh or of Jim Jones or something like that. The difference is that they all thought that what they believed was the truth. But if the disciples have knowingly removed the body, then they died for what they knew was not the truth. And this we know is not human nature. You know, friends, what happened in that garden 2,000 years ago was something that had to be reckoned with. The Sanhedrin had to try to find a way to explain it in some other way. In other words, what I'm getting at is this. The evidence for the resurrection was of such significance that it couldn't merely be ignored. Wouldn't that have been the easiest way to deal with it? Just ignore it. Just, you know, who's going to believe that, right? That would have been the obvious way to handle it, but the evidence was of such significance that it demands some kind of explanation if you're going to dismiss it. To do otherwise, would be to ignore the elephant in the room, right, and the Proliferation of explanations throughout the years then is a perverse indication that something dramatic happened that day. That cannot be ignored. At a sad thing this week, I in in thinking about this and looking up some things online, I I ran across a, a testimony. I guess you would call it. I don't know what else to call it. Um. Uh, Read the testimony of a man who formerly professed faith. He grew up in a kind of J. Frank Norris style fundamentalism. He got his Ph.D. in theology from Bob Jones University. He taught at for up until nineteen about 1993, I believe, into the early 90s. He taught. Uh, theology and apologetics and things like that at International Baptist Seminary, a place that I'm very familiar with growing up in Phoenix and have had contact with through the years. And so this article hit very close to home for me. I ran across this article in which he explains how around 1996 he came to really abandon his faith. And he describes some of that, but one of the things that he did in this article was to outline what he considered to be four alternative naturalistic explanations for the empty tomb. And I guess the reason that that moved me so much is the closeness to, to my own background And it was a reminder to me that I should not take for granted that you sitting here this morning are convinced and committed to belief in the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. And I I am sure that
1: at least at some level, some of you have struggled
0: with doubts. And, you know, part of Christian growth is being honest with those doubts and wrestling through them with a reverence for the Word of God.
1: You know, there are some
0: incredible implications if you come to the point where you deny the resurrection of
1: Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul
0: um, highlights a number of these implications in 1 Corinthians 15, which we read earlier. Let me just very quickly highlight a few for you. You know, if you come to the point where you end up denying the miraculous resurrection of somebody from the grave, Jesus, then in the first case you have to say with the Apostle Paul, or you would have to concede that every one of those eyewitnesses was knowingly lying. As Paul said it in that that passage, our testimony is in vain. We didn't see what we're telling you, we saw. We saw Him with our own eyes. John says with our own hands, we handled Him. All of that testimony, you just have to say those people were lying. Or there was some kind of mass um, being duped. Paul says, if you come to this conclusion, then you have to also concede listen, that your faith is futile and that you are still in your sins. I'm going to ask you this. If you come to the conclusion that miraculous things just can't happen and that bodies don't come back to life and that these ancient people didn't understand science and they gave the best explanation they could for what they misunderstood, then you have no answer for your sin against God. Because Christ was crucified for our sins and raised again for our justification. His resurrection was the vindication from Almighty God that His sacrifice for sin was acceptable. And when you begin to deny that, I want to ask you, where else are you going to go to be rid of, to be free from your sin? Where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. I hope at the end of the day, if nothing else holds you, that holds you. This is the one who speaks the truth, and I'm just going to receive what he says. My whole hope, my faith, my, the, the forgiveness of my sins rests on the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to say in that passage that if Christ is not raised from the dead, then think about this. All of those people throughout history, including perhaps some of your loved ones who died believing in Jesus Christ, they have all perished irretrievably. They're gone. It's done. You will never see them again. Those martyrs have died in vain. Paul says it this way, I face death every day. Why do I do that? Because I believe that my labor is not in vain in the Lord, that there's a resurrection of the body, that my resurrection is tied to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He rose and I'll be raised, and I'm going to live forever in a, an immortal, immortalized flesh. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then neither will you. And your fate is tied to His. Paul says in that passage, He was the first fruits of those who slept. If Christ didn't rise from the dead, then this life is all there is. So eat, drink, and be merry. But I want to remind
1: you, tomorrow you die. if in this life we have only only we have hope
0: we are to be pitied and i think human beings inherently know i just believe this human beings inherently know that there's something more to life than this mortal existence don't you think so you go around the world and you'll find this is a people just Push this off and and push it away and tamp it down, but even the most westernized scientific they still have this sense that that there's something more, and so maybe they'll look for spirituality in some kind of way or some kind of connection, of course, people believe in reincarnation and and you know all of these different kinds of things because God is implanted within us the knowledge that there is something more, as the writer of Ecclesiastes said he Eternity in our hearts. But the fact is, friends listen to this, the fact is Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, so by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. As in Adam all die, so in Christ, those who are in Christ shall all be made alive. So what does that mean for you? How do you go out and live in light of that? Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know this. Because you know this. That your labor is not in vain. In the Lord, in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. You can live a life of denial for these earthly years. You can be subjected to a life of suffering. You can live and die even for the sake of Jesus Christ. As Paul said, I face death every day. And you can do it confident, immovable, unshakable. You can face no matter what happens in this world, in this country, you can face whatever's coming down the pike in five years, ten years, fifteen years, twenty years. You can face it steadfastly with resolute joy and hope because your labor's not in vain in the Lord. Because there is a resurrected Christ, and his resurrection is the first fruits of yours. There's a day coming, the likes of which this day is not worth even comparing to the glory that will be revealed first partaken of by the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ our lord amen let's pray our father we pray that you would be merciful to us and help those who have those who are
1: struggling with doubts that you would confirm our faith you would show us the futility of all other hopes thank you for the eyewitnesses
0: that you sovereignly ordained and providentially governed to give us hope Assurance that what you say was going to happen, did happen, in fact, in history. Thank you for it. Thank you. Pray now that you'd strengthen us in this. In Jesus'
1: name, amen.
0: Would you stand again and confess your faith? If indeed you have faith in the resurrected Christ, confess our faith together through saying the Apostles' Creed. This is one of the earliest Christian creeds outside of the Bible itself. And uh, from those earliest days, God's people, just like we are this morning, God's people have generation after generation after generation continuing to proclaim, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. So you join me as we say together the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen indeed.